0: special friday edition of our show her story on the rocks normally my co-host and i katie would be sitting around talking about two famous women from history and drinking however sometimes we like to talk to people who are making history and writing about it so today we have a special guest peter zoitlin welcome to the show
1: thank you thanks for having me good to be here
0: We're so glad to talk to you. Peter is a freelance journalist and author whose work has appeared in the Boston Globe and has written New York Times bestsellers. Peter lives in Massachusetts with his his wife, who's also an author and is the great-grandson of the subject of the book that we're talking about today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: I'm going to make one correction. I'm a great-grandnephew, actually.
0: Great-grandnephew. Okay.
1: He was my great-grandfather's sister. Oh, cool. So what would you like me to tell you about this eccentric member of my family? Um, (laughs) One of the most interesting things about how I came to this story is that no one in my family knew about her. Uh, My mother got a letter in 1993 from someone who said he was researching the story of the first woman to ride a bicycle around the world. And the letter made it pretty clear that he'd found the right family but my mother and no one in my family had a clue as to who this woman was or what she had done. And um, it sat with me for about 10 years before I picked it up again and decided to run with it and see what I could learn about her because it puzzled me that a woman who had left her family, three small children in 1894, to go gallivanting around the world on a bicycle This was just such an, you know, just sort of such an eccentric story. I couldn't imagine why no one in my family had ever heard of it, heard about it.
0: Right. Yeah. It's real. That's amazing. See, that's one of the things I was going to ask you, like, did you know? But apparently not. That's wild.
1: You know, I think we all probably when we're kids fantasize that we'll learn that we're descended from somebody famous, you know, George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. Uh, This is who I got. And it was, you know, it was just, the whole story sounded so preposterous when we first heard about it. And what I learned as I, you know, my research advanced is how famous she had become in her day. Wow. She was a master self-promoter, um, very adept at exploiting the, the press of the day to build her celebrity. And she, you know, as I discovered, uh, through a pretty painstaking process because a lot of ancient newspapers were not digitized in those days. Um, She left a trail of news coverage all over the world. I collected probably a thousand stories or news items about her uh, from all parts of the globe. So, you know, she had, she's kind of had, she burned brightly for a time and then quickly faded when this trip was over. And lived a life of, of obscurity afterwards. Hmm. But, you know, she was gone 15 months on the road, husband and children back in Boston. And that was a pretty radical thing, or it would be a radical thing for someone to do today in yeah. 1894. For a Jewish woman, particularly, to do this was absolutely outrageous.
0: Wow. Yeah. So first, let's, um, before we dive in any deeper, tell our listeners what they can drink while they're reading this book that they're going to buy. As our listeners know, on Friday mornings, I am unfortunately not drunk (laughs) while I'm recording. I'm sticking to coffee. But I did try this cocktail last night called Spin. And I heard that you and your wife um, made a cocktail for the book as well.
1: Right. Well, we actually had a, a, a... The son of good friends of ours who was uh, now in Denver, but he was a bartender in Brooklyn for a long time in New York, in Manhattan, and Brooklyn. And uh, we asked him, could you come up with a signature cocktail called the Annie Londonderry Cocktail? And I'll explain why uh, it's called the Annie Londonderry Cocktail, because that was the pseudonym under which my great granddad traveled. And I told him I only had one requirement for the cocktail, and that is that it had to contain Irish whiskey. And if you want, I'll explain why. Um, As I said, she wrote under an assumed name, Londonderry, very Irish sounding. But there's a scene in the novel, Spin, which I've written about her, which I've reimagined her journey, in which she's, in a sense, auditioning for the role of the woman who's going to take on this task and settle a wager between two wealthy Boston merchants debating the issue of women's rights and women's equality. And she knows she has to make an impression on him. And this is a real person, Colonel Albert Pope, who was a bicycle magnate and a major industrialist. And, you know, he's a, a very imperious, older man. She's 23 years old. He offers her a glass of water at their meeting, and she wants to prove that she's plucky, as they used to say, and has the grit to do this, uh, take on this task. And she says, well, I suppose it's too early in the morning for whiskey. So I asked Andrew Demers, our bartender friend, to create a cocktail around whiskey. As it turns out, it's got one other connection to the story, which is it, it's made with um, a Sri Lankan tea syrup. And Sri Lanka used to be Ceylon, a major tea-producing country. And it's one of the points that Annie uh, touched, touched when she was making her way around the world in the 1890s. So it's, um, you know, I told him I wanted it to be bold and brash, just like she was, and, and that's what Andrew came up with. And if, if you want, we, if you, I can provide you with the recipe, you can make it available online to people.
0: Yeah, I would absolutely love that. It's funny, I included whiskey as well, but peach whiskey because I loved that part of the book. And here I am whining about not drinking at 10 a.m. And she was all for it. Like, guess it's too early. So I made one that was a little classy, a little fun, a little risky, and then very brash. So I mixed for mine, and I would love to put your um, cocktail up with it so they can go up together. I mixed, um, it's kind of like a sangria. Spritzer, so it has white wine and peach whiskey, Campari, triple sec, and grenadine with two orange wheels in it that kind of look like bicycle tires, and then a sprig of thyme on top. It's great,
1: yeah. Triple sec, you can't go wrong with anything with triple sec and grenadine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes
0: it beautiful.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm big on the tiki drinks, you know, the tiki oh, yeah. cocktails, so those are always good ingredients. <laughs>
0: So I guess let's start with setting the scene for the book. We've mentioned that we have a young mother of three. She's in, you know, the tail end of this Victorian era. And what is life like for women in in Boston just in general?
1: Well, Annie was an immigrant. She came here at the age of five with two older siblings and her parents. And they settled in what was known as the Old West End of Boston, still is called that, but that neighborhood was pretty much destroyed in the 1950s during the big urban renewal craze. And if people are familiar with Boston, it's, it's the neighborhood where Massachusetts General Hospital is today. It was one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the United States at the time. Immigrants from all over the world settled there. So it was the kind of place where if you were going about your daily business, you were apt to hear many different languages spoken, to smell the aromas of many different foods, you know, Polish foods, Italian foods, Irish. Um, and, you know, for someone with um, a little bit of imagination, whose life was very much con- confined to a small neighborhood along the Charles River, this could have been quite an enticement, sort of, sort of a thing to pique the curiosity of a, of a young girl interested in the in the wider world, so you know it was a tight knit community. Uh, this Annie's Annie's family was not a family of means, um, so they lived in a, you know in one of these multi story tenements. She was married very young. Shortly after her parents died, she was uh, I think she was either sixteen or early you know, early just turned seventeen, and married a man several years older, an arranged marriage. And she really was not cut out for the domestic life. I mean, she herself later in her life, you know, pretty much acknowledged she didn't have much of a maternal instinct, but by the time she was 23, she had had three children. So it was a life of, you know, a lot of household drudgery and taking care of kids. And she was not to be bound. Um, And, you know, the $64,000 question in all this is, you know, she, her life was not unlike the life of many you know, almost all of her contemporaries. but what, what is it about someone, either in genetics or upbringing, that enables them to color, what I say, color so far outside the lines, and to do something that 99.9 percent of her you know her contemporaries would never have done? I, I don't know the answer to that. Question, but it, it was absolutely remarkable that she could, you know, go from you know, such a cloistered life with a lot of expectations about, you know, what she should do and, her, you know, how much she should, attention she should give to her children, especially in a Jewish community, you know, where it was all about educating the children. Um, she, she up and left. She was looking for an escape, and the bicycle turned out to be her means of escape.
0: Yeah, I was looking at some of the promotional like material and information about your book, and there's the quote um, by Susan B. Anthony that said, bicycling has done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. Was um, Annie a skilled bicyclist, or is this something she had to pick up along the way?
1: She had no experience before she set out on this journey. She had absolutely no experience on a bicycle, except for three lessons. There were bicycle academies back then, where people because it was such a popular that people have to understand the context for this story. Not only was this the height of the popularity of the bicycle, but it was becoming a sport that was opening up to women because of changes in bicycle design. So people were buying bicycles by the millions and they could actually go to places to to learn to ride them. It's interesting you mentioned that quotation. Susan B. Anthony actually said that in an interview with the reporter Nellie Bly just months after Annie finished her journey. Now, whether she was directly referencing it, I don't know. But another important piece of the context here is that the bicycle became a symbol of the women's Mo- suffrage movement and the women's movement for social equality, and and really was a you know pun intended revolutionary piece of equipment for women. It dramatically changed the lives of women just before the turn of the 20th century. And Annie's what she was really uh, skillful at was, was was sort of surfing these trends the interest in the question over women's equality, very intensely debated subject in her day, the, um, the popularity of the bicycle and its role in uh, women's emancipation. And a third trend, actually, which was an early era of globalization, and which is a term we tend to associate with the later 20th century, but changes in technology, both in communications and transportation, were making the world more accessible. It was shrinking, metaphorically. So people who didn't have the means to travel were very interested in following the adventures of those who, who could. Um, I mentioned Nellie Bly, the reporter, who was most famous for a stunt she did several years before Annie's trip in which she went around the world uh, trying to beat the fictional record of Jules Verne's character, Phileas Fogg, in Around the World in 80 Days. She wrote about it for The New York World. She made it from New York and then back in 75 days. And so there's a lineage to Annie's journey. Um, and she would have been very well aware, by the way, of Nellie Bly's journey. And I don't have any direct evidence of this, but I do suppose it in the novel that she was quite inspired by that.
0: It's funny because Nellie Bly was going to be the next thing that I brought up. I, it's like we're vibing here. I love it. I um so doing a women's history podcast, people often ask me like who who are the women from history that you like to talk about the most? And Nellie Bly is always in my top five. So as I was reading this book, I was like, wow, she went around the world. Wow, she packed really light and didn't take a lot of things. Wow, she ends up working for the New York world. That sounds a lot like somebody else I know. Yeah. It seems like her life was peppered with the exact right things to like track just the same way Nellie Bly did.
1: Yeah, and Nellie Bly, um, you know, interestingly enough, when Annie came back and wrote her first person account of her trip, the only piece of writing I have in which she in the first person describes her trip, the New York world didn't give her the byline Nellie, um, Annie Londonderry, which is her assumed name, or Annie Cohen, Kopchowski, her real name. They called her Nellie Bly Jr. Um, Nellie Bly became, uh, kind of a name that was assigned to many people over time, what they call these women, uh, girl stunt journalists was the name of it. And, um, and she became one of those stunt journalists after this trip for the New York World. So yes, her life intersects not physically, but in interesting ways uh, with Nellie Bly's. And I had always supposed because Nellie Bly departed the world for the second time in 1895, I believe, and after a falling out with her editors. And I believe that this may have been the, 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 the the way the world kind of stuck at Nellie Bly, with whom they were quite unhappy was to tell her we found another one. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're dispensable. Um, I don't know that to be so, but it, it, it kind of had a ring of plausibility to me.
0: Yeah. Sounds about right. <laughs> um, so you mentioned earlier, this, this, um, journey kind of begins with a bet almost. And the bet includes, that Annie has to earn $5,000 during this journey, and she becomes quite a little self-promoter.
1: Yeah. So so the story, as I first knew it, and as it was reported widely throughout her travels, was that she was set in motion by a wager between two wealthy Boston businessmen um, uh, debating the question of women's equality up until this time only a man had made it around the world on a bicycle and as reported the, the the wager had several conditions she had to uh travel 10,000 miles by bicycle she had to make the trip within 15 months and as you said she was required to to earn $5,000 en route and, you know wire it back and not accept anything gratuitously and she had to start without a penny in her pocket. So that turned this really into more than a test of a woman's physical endurance, but into a test of her ability to fend for herself in the world. Now, I don't wanna to give too much away, um, but I will tell you that Annie was a serial fabulous. I, My book, Spin, which is a work of historical fiction, the subject of my book was writing her own historical fiction in real time. Um, A lot of the fun, I think, of reading Spin is trying to tease out to readers what's real and what isn't real. And that's why the subtitle is called Spin, a novel based on a quote-unquote mostly true story, because she herself was an absolutely unreliable witness to the events of her own life. And as you said, a great self-promoter. And great self-promoters like Barnum and Bailey and others, um, you know, will stretch the truth, bend the truth, often to the breaking point to make sure that they get the ink that they're looking for. And what was interesting about Annie and her character, her as a, a real-life character, is that she didn't seem to really care at all about sticking to a single consistent script about her own travels. So she was often telling reporters, sometimes in the same city on the same day, wildly divergent accounts of where she'd been and how long it had taken. Uh, She was really, she had a very modern sense of celebrity, let's put it that way. Mm. I think if she were alive today, she would be big on Instagram. You know, she'd be, she'd have a million followers, um, you know, she'd be an influencer. Um, but keep in mind, she was doing this in 1894 when the tools for self-promotion were extremely limited. And so I've, I think one of her great achievements that's really not subject to debate, as is the bicycle trip in some regards, was she started off as an anonymous Jewish housewife in Boston, 23 years old, and 15 months later was world famous for riding a bicycle around the world. That's no small achievement in and of itself.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. And I love that she's telling these different stories as she goes, because there are some women that we've done research on, like Madame Tussaud of the Wax Museum, for example, with like the book she wrote about herself is like, that didn't happen, honey, like that she says over and over. But I, I love that about her. And I love that she started not being known at all to just a few months later being famous. And did her family support this journey, or were they like, "Do not go, no way"? Because this is not only a physical and mental challenge, but like women were supposed to travel with chaperones. Like there are rules this time in history. What what were well, they the, thinking? Her
1: her absence from her family's life for fifteen months had some pretty serious repercussions for her children. Keeping in mind that they the, the three that were born before the trip were ages five, three, and two when she left. So you can imagine, you know, that's pretty much an abandonment. So um, there's very little historical record about her family's reaction. And i you know, the little bit of correspondence that survives doesn't really shed much light on this. My only insight into it comes from her granddaughter, Mary, who I found after a long search with the help of a genealogist, who knew her grandmother, who knew Annie. Um, so I have a little bit of insight from that and just a few hints about how her family responded from early newspaper accounts. And one of them, it says that her brother Bennett, who was my great-grandfather, was at the Massachusetts Capitol building where the big departure ceremony took place. And um, Annie sort of mused that she was disappointed that he didn't come up to say goodbye. I think he probably disapproved mightily. I think he probably also suspected she was going to get twenty miles down the road and turn around, you know. And this was all a bit of a stunt. And there was a lot of speculation that this was nothing more, right from the get-go, than a publicity stunt for the Columbia Bicycle Company that provided her first, the first of two bicycles that she used on this journey. But she didn't come back in a day or two. And my great grandparents who lived in the same building no doubt had a lot of responsibility for these young children. Although Annie was married, her husband had to work. He was a peddler, a devout Orthodox Jew, so he would have needed help with these kids. And and Annie's brother and um, sister-in-law lived uh, right in the same building. So I don't think they were too happy about it. And I've often speculated that one of the reasons this family, this story did not get passed down over the generations in the family was it wasn't talked about much
0: mm. that
1: for many, it was a painful, if not shameful episode.
0: Wow. Interesting. Um, you know, and I was thinking about as I was reading, like how, how did you intend for people to relate to this story as they read? Because I, I feel like you're touching on that with that last answer. Mm-hmm. I, I know that there are many women who, back then and now have felt kind of trapped in a relationship or in motherhood and this was just an act of bravery and an act of rebellion and an act of adventure kind of all at once so how do you want the readers to relate to this
1: and it was also quite frankly a pretty self-indulgent thing um and it's interesting so this I, i should mention because it bears on this question uh, in 2007, I published a nonfiction account of this uh, called um, "Around the World on Two Wheels," and I gave a lot of book talks at the time. And it was interesting to to gauge the reactions of people to her as a as a person. And I even got some of it just yesterday because I've got a there's some book clubs around the country who've gotten advanced copies of the book for discussion, and we're getting feedback from it. You know there were a lot of groups, particularly when I spoke to groups of older Jewish women who could not just absolutely could not move beyond how appalled they were at the decision that she made to leave her kids behind. Mm. And that's you know fair enough. Um, at the same time for me, you know, not directly affected by this um, other than to have this wonderful story to chase all over. Um, she was more like my eccentric old great, you know, my old eccentric aunt from the arsenic and old lace, you know, this sort of charming scoundrel who did this audacious thing. Um, you know, so I, I come down on the view that she's a deeply flawed person. She was a deeply flawed person, but it takes nothing away from her achievement or from, the, the you know, the great color of this story. And what it says about the lives of women in, in her time, um, in terms of the novel, um, I mean, I think people are going to probably going to be split with those kinds of reactions too. I've seen it already. Um, some I mean, they had to be prodded to give feedback about the book because they couldn't. They couldn't. They just wanted to focus on whether they liked her or didn't like her. Um, you know when I was working on the first book, I reached a point when I began to realize that I was not what I, what I had set out to do, which was what I thought prove her claim to the title of first woman to ride around the world on a bicycle, that there were just too many holes in the story and too many things that weren't adding up about her timeline. And, um, and at first I was disappointed Um, A little bit in her and a little bit in how the story was playing out. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized this is a much more interesting character than I originally assumed. This is not just a woman, you know, uh, with great physical endurance. This is a really complicated woman. Maybe with, you know, wouldn't surprise me with some mental health issues. Um, But For whatever reason was able to step so far outside the boundaries of expected behavior for a woman of her era and so that to me was really kind of appealing and charming because I you know I kind of like people who you know can sidestep convention and you know take the take the road not taken so to speak so she definitely filled that bill and more
0: yeah one of my favorite things about doing author interviews is to listening how the the author's uh relationship with the character has changed and now you have this experience of both a fiction and you know nonfiction like mixed together of how um how you feel about her and how you like write about her. Did you feel a burden at all of like pressing this part of history back into the world?
1: No, you know, it was interesting. I, you know, I really, someone asked me the other day, how do I feel better now? I said, I love her. I said, "I've she's been, she's been in my head now for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And and I, and I was cyclist myself. And so especially when I was working on the first book, you know, as I was riding, I just kept thinking about her and what it was like when she was riding and how different it was in terms of having a cell phone, having a, you know, a lightweight bicycle, all those things. Um, you know, so I've really sort of embraced her. I mean, I really sort of feel like I love her like a family member because she's been in my head so long. For, for me, when my wife, and it was my wife who told me I really had to write this as historical fiction, and I had never written fiction before, I wasn't sure how to go about it. But it actually sort of flowed pretty easily, and I think it was because I felt like I really knew her through all these years of thinking about her story and all the research, finding my distant cousin Mary, her only granddaughter, getting to know Mary, you know, that I just felt like I knew her. And so, you know, there are, it's interesting. So I think a lot of the discussion when people read the novel spin is going to be, okay, which parts of this are literally true? Which parts... Are probably true, which are plausible, but we don't know, and which are outright contrived either by Annie herself or by me as the, um, as the author. Now it's written in her voice, Annie's voice, in the form of a long letter to her granddaughter Mary late in Annie's life, just weeks before she dies. And she wants to tell Mary the real story of what happened because in real life she regaled mary up until she died annie died when mary was 16. she regaled mary with stories of this trip and so it was her setting the record straight so to speak but What this was my story so it's, i inhabited annie for that purpose right to to write this letter in her voice and it was really quite enjoyable um it was liberating not to be bound by the actual record. I, I had had suggestions years ago when I was working on the first nonfiction book that I should write as, as historical fiction because the historical record was fairly thin. But since the story had been lost to history, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to obscure the real story. But it's important to understand that the real story incorporates all of Annie's falsehoods and prevarications. Is part of the real story. So in that sense, spin, you know, it takes it, it's in and out. It's really, I think, it's gonna be interesting for people to try and debate or discern which parts of this are literally true. And how much did Ann, what did Annie make up and what did Peter the author make up? Um so there's a lot to discuss.
0: Yeah, it's like it's multi-layered. Um, as you were doing research for the, this book and the previous one, what was your, like, favorite thing that you found? You mentioned that there were tons of news articles. Is there something that stands out that you kept going back to as source material?
1: Well, one of the things when I was first doing the research that was startling to me but, but also gave me some hope that I would learn more about the story is that when I first started the research, I did not know that she was married at the time of the trip, but I would, really didn't know that she had children. And, there was men, and it was rarely mentioned, because again, she traveled under an assumed name. She rarely talked about who she really was. And I think she clearly wanted to avoid the controversy that would come with people finding out that she had abandoned three children to go on this journey. So when I first, but, but it was mentioned in one or two places. I don't know how reporters found out when I first saw a mention of her three children, I thought, oh my God, this is, I I, I couldn't believe it myself. But then my second thought was, that's great news for me as a researcher, because if those children had children, they might still be alive and they might have information that can help me. And that's what happened. Um, You know, I hired a specialist in Jewish genealogy to help me and it took a long time. And she had a, her, her maiden name was Cohen, very common Jewish name. She had an unusual married name, but many people anglicized those names, which, in fact, she did for business purposes later in her life. But, but in fact, that, came, that hope came true, and I did locate her only direct living descendant, this granddaughter, Mary, outside of New York City. Wow. So that, that was probably... If you think about all the things that I stumbled upon in the research, that was probably one of the most, it was the most startling, but in terms of the research, the most promising.
0: Did you have to travel at all or visit anywhere to to help get this kind of on paper?
1: I did some traveling. So as I mentioned earlier, in, in terms of the research process, back in those days, historic newspapers, very few of them were available online and searchable online. So it often involved going to libraries that had microfilm of various places and literally trying to narrow dates and pouring. I mean, seriously, I would I would sit for hours trying to, you know, look for her name in print. And it's a needle in a haystack process. So not quite as bad as it sounds in the sense that by the time I would travel, let's say, to Albany, New York, I would have an idea of what dates I was looking at. You know, she was there between... Yeah, this two-week period in April or whatever. But when I first started out, the the only clue I really had as to her route was a reference in an article from an an El Paso newspaper where she was a year into the trip. And when she left that city, she followed the Santa Fe railway tracks north. So I looked up a map of the old Santa Fe, and I literally started calling local libraries in all the little towns along the route. And I'd say, look, I'm looking for news stories about a woman who would have passed through your town probably between July 4th and July 10th. And sometimes they would help me or they'd get a volunteer to help me. And sure enough, every time something came back, you know, Miss Londonderry from Boston passed through Las Cruces last week on her bicycle and, you know, short news item. So with every point I could, you know, uh, put a pin in the map, I could narrow the search. You know, if you knew she was at point X on a certain date, and point Y on another date, anywhere in between, you, had a, you could narrow the range. So it was kind of a painstaking process of putting that together. Um, it was a different challenge outside the United States. Um, I had the help of a wonderful bicycle historian named David Herlihy for research on, on, in France. But when I found Mary, the granddaughter, she also had some scrapbooks of news clippings that Annie had kept and pasted into these scrapbooks. Uh, they were a little bit disorganized, but but that also gave me a foothold into the, the French coverage of her trip. Um, so it was really you know, pretty painstaking. Na- nowadays, I've found a lot of new stuff. or not, It's old stuff, but it's new to me because more historic newspapers are searchable online.
0: Hmm. That's awesome. Did you have a favorite part to write in your book?
1: Yeah, in spin? Yeah, I think so. Um, and it's really the story that, that first really grabbed my attention about her. When I started to look at this in earnest, my, one of my first telephone calls was to the, the the library at the Massachusetts state Capitol, where the trip began thinking they might have a record of it. And the woman who answered the phone without missing a beat said, I know we don't have anything about her because I got a call from a guy a few weeks ago in Texas looking for the same thing. I said, I was astonished. I said, who else is on her trail, let alone from Texas? And she put us in touch. He was thrilled to hear from me. And I was thrilled to know somebody else was there. He was researching a different story and stumbled upon her. And it has to do with El Paso. I won't give it away, but I will tell you that Annie did in fact cross paths with the most notorious outlaw of the Old West, John Wesley Hardin, on the night of an infamous murder in El Paso um, that was committed by four men in John Wesley Hardin's uh, employee. Um, So, you know, when I first found that little piece of information out early in my research, I said this story is just absolutely unbelievable. My Jewish great-grandon from Boston crossed paths with John Wesley Hardin, the you know the most famous outlaw of the Old West. How is that even you know what, what universe does this happen? So that was really the story that got me completely hooked and determined. To track down this story as best as I could, um, you asked me earlier if I had traveled i mean I, you know I did go to some libraries, but I also had the opportunity, not so much part of the research but later to, to bike her route <clears throat> more or less through France at the invitation of a bicycle tour company that had organized the tour kind of in her honor and invited me to go. Um, it was minimal travel, but um mostly it was to libraries. <laughs> to hunt and peck through microfilm.
0: I love that. So I think that everybody after hearing this are going to want to get this book. So can you tell us where they can find it, where they can find you and when they can get it?
1: The book is where you get all your books. I would first of all recommend if you can to either order it online or buy it in person at your independent bookstore, your local bookseller. And I'd like to support them, but you can, and we all do sometimes, uh, you know, shop at Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble or Target. Well, anywhere where you buy books, it will be available. I have two websites. One devoted specifically to Annie Londonderry, and that's AnnieLondonderry.com. And there's images there. There's more of this, you know, some of the story. Um, there's, there are links to... The ways that this story rippled out, it's been the subject of two musicals, one in Canada, one in the UK, and just, you know, there's other resources there. My author website is my name, Peter Zeutlin, that spells Z-H-E-U-T-L-I-N dot com, and there's information there about my other books. I've, I've written about other subjects other than Annie, and so that's the more comprehensive website.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I can't wait for everybody to go get this for their summer book club. It's just a, it's a great story. You can sit on the beach with it. its yep. You can have your choice of cocktails. You got two to pick from. It's great. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking about this story. its It's quite unusual.
0: Well, it's, it's wonderful. And I just, I even just love the cover of the book. It's great to have on your bookshelf. It's so pretty and bright and vibrant. Thank you right.
1: very
0: much, yeah, well, I hope you have a great rest of your Friday. We're in the same time zone, so we can go have lunch and be done.
1: <laughs> Thanks so much,. It's good to see you.
0: Bye. It was so nice to meet you. Bye bye.